This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the CBS News of the World from the morning of September 3rd, 1942. It includes updates on the war from New York, along with live reports from Australia, Moscow, London, and Egypt. Just a quick note, the broadcast is missing the intro and does jump right into the news updates. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcast, where you can find links to past episodes as well as the books featured in our episodes. So thanks for listening, and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Before calling in Australia, here are the latest details on the fighting in China. Chongqing reports this morning say that the Japs are preparing to abandon Jinhua, provincial capital of Chekiang. For some days now, Chinese troops have been tightening a ring around that city, the last enemy-held air base town in the Chekiang seaboard region. The main force of the attackers are driving into Jinhua's western suburbs along the Hanchao-Nankang Railway. Other Chinese troops, which had infiltrated behind the Japs' lines, are storming the city from the southeast and the northeast. The Chongqing communique also reports the recapture of Tsinyun and Suanting. These towns lie between Lishui and the railroad on the line of the Jap retreat from the Lishui sector. To the south, according to a Reuters dispatch received in London, Chinese troops have advanced to within 16 miles of Canton. Our first report this morning comes from the southwest Pacific area. After a brief pause, we take you to Australia. Australia. William J. Dunn reporting. The sudden halt in ground fighting in the Kokoda area of New Guinea, announced in today's communication General McCarthy's headquarters, comes entirely without explanation, and after a period of several days in which the action had been constantly growing in intensity, the low probably will not continue for long. The Allied bomber attacked on enemy bases at Buka in the northwestern Solomons looks here like another move to check at their inception anticipated enemy attempts to regain the territory they have lost to Admiral Gormley's forces. Enemy activity at Buka appears to have increased since the heavy raids on Rabaul, which have been made with devastating regularity since the attack on Tulagi got underway. Prime Minister Curtin, a few moments ago, delivered an important radio message to the people of Australia. For the first time, he outlined the austerity program, which is to govern the way of life in this commonwealth for the duration of the war. The program is comprehensive and will reach into every home on this continent, affecting the food Australia eats, the clothes she wears, the content of her newspapers, the tempo of her recreation and relaxation. Never in the history of this nation has an economic program so drastic even been visualized. It will demand the maximum of readjustment on the part of every Australian until the final peace is won. In Canberra today, Dr. Evatt, Australian Minister for External Affairs, told the Commonwealth Parliament 
that important aid for Australia is arriving both from England and the United States. This aid includes not only much-needed combat airplanes, he said, but also such vital war materials as gasoline, oil, tin plate, rubber, aluminum, and other materials for munitions. Probably his most significant revelation, however, concerned combat planes. I cannot give figures, he said, but the total number of planes actually received in this theater since March has been far beyond our wildest hopes in the black days of February. This was Dr. Ebbett's first report to Parliament of his mission to the United States and Britain, from which he returned only a few weeks ago. This is William J. Dunn in Australia. I return you to CBS in New York. Back in New York, and now for a report from the Soviet capital. Go ahead, Moscow. CBS Moscow, Larry Lasser reporting. This morning, the Germans are moving enormous masses of troops and tanks covered by airplanes against the Volga city of Stalingrad. They are making a decisive attempt to crush the big steel city and cut off the Soviet Union from her oil supplies moving up the Volga. As the Nazis launch one mass attack after another against the fortifications on the southwest approaches to the city, Great convoys of oil barges are slowly steaming up the Volga. And every shipload of oil that moves up the brown waters of the Volga now has a bearing on the future of the Soviet Union, Europe, and the world. With cannon shooting Messerschmitts flying in front of their tanks, the Germans are trying to break through for the kill. And for this, the Germans are employing desperate tactics. Every three hours, they throw in new reserves into battle against the fagged-out Red Army men. The fourth year of war to decide the fate of Europe is underway. But here in Moscow, there are few signs of the momentous battle which is taking place in the South. This week, Soviet children have gone back to school as usual. The Soviet Union regards them as its greatest stake in the future, and nothing is to be allowed to interfere with their education or inculcation with the principles of communism. Children in the higher grades will not start school until October 1st. Many of them are remaining on the collective farms to put the finishing touches to the harvest. The other day I visited a big state farm to watch the kids at work. They were sunburned and healthy, the boys with cropped heads and the girls with long braids. All summer long they had been getting up at six and working in the fields. Those under 16 had worked eight hours, the older, 10 hours. They went to bed at 10 every night in the dormitories or had boarded with the villagers. For entertainment, they played games after work. They have been treated to movies three times in six weeks, and once a concert too from Moscow has visited them. The spirit of competition was very keen. Each group wanted to win the red banner to stick into the ground alongside. I came to them on their last day of work, and prizes were being awarded in a big barn. A Red Army pilot from a nearby field was addressing them. He said, when the war is over, people will say to you, you were young and strong. What did you do to defeat Hitler? And then you can say, I worked in a vegetable farm, helping to gather the harvest. This is Larry Lester returning you now to Columbia in New York. For news of the British capital, we take you now to London. CBS London, Charles Collingwood reporting. British bombers in strong force attacked the Upper Rhineland last night, mainly Karlsruhe. It must have been quite a raid. Returning crews reported a pall of smoke eight 
6,000 feet over the town. Like most RAF targets these days, Karlsruhe is an important transport center. It also makes a lot of war material. The British lost eight bombers raiding Karlsruhe. Thomas Williams, the unreprieved member of the six young Irishmen involved in the killing of a Northern Irish policeman, was executed in Belfast yesterday. His death set in motion remarkable scenes all over Northern and Southern Ireland. There was a gun battle between Northern Irish police and a band of IRA men who had commandeered a truck and dashed across the border from Southern Ireland. In Dublin, stores and pubs and even banks closed for an hour. Special masses were said. In Belfast, policemen were beaten up. An American army car was stoned. Two United States soldiers were threatened by a crowd of women mourners. I was in Belfast a few weeks ago. The only excitement then was the presence of United States troops. The streets of Belfast were full of jeeps and command cars and low-slung staff cars. United States soldiers were everywhere. Now, our troops in Northern Ireland are standing by with the British, ready to act against any disturbance by the outlawed IRA. If they go out at night, they're ordered to walk in twos and threes. The Irish question, like the Indian question, has for a long time seemed to us Americans an academic issue, full of clear-cut rights and wrongs. Now, our troops in Northern Ireland are getting a very practical education in the difficulties and obscurities of international relations. Every day is an anniversary of something. Today is a special anniversary. Three years ago, Britain went to war with Germany. Here in Britain, it is a very meaningful day. Two hours ago, millions of British men and women stopped what they were doing to say a prayer. The prayer was written by the Archbishop of Canterbury, and its main line is, make us worthy of victory. It's a good line because it expresses with exactitude the way the British feel today. After three years of war, the British heart is still in the war. They are not thinking of stalemate or negotiated peace or of getting other people to fight their battles for them. They are praying, make us worthy of victory. And now for our next report, we take you to Egypt. Go ahead, Cairo. CBS Egypt, Winston Burdett reporting. Battered by Allied bombers, the whole of the Africa Corps was sitting on the 8th Army's southern flank yesterday and waiting for Rommel's orders to attack. At sundown, the German commander had not yet ordered an attack in mass. He had not yet succeeded in luring British armor into a major engagement. He had played a cautious game this time, jabbing here and there along the length of General Montgomery's east-west defenses, no doubt hoping for a tactical slot on our part that would give him an opening. If he wanted, Rommel could try advancing eastward, where he might move some distance further before meeting any defenses more formidable than the ones he had already passed. But moving east would not do him any good. His job was to beat the 8th Army and not walk past it. While Rommel was looking for his main chance yesterday, British mobile forces hit at him from the east and southeast, British guns hammered at him from the north, and on six successive operations, British light bombers tasted his transport, his troops, his munitions dumped. During the night, two ammunition vehicles blew sky-high under British bombs, and at dawn, the sand was littered with the carcasses of burned-out trucks. The dust settled yesterday, and it was the biggest day in the air so far. RAF light bombers flew 20% more sorties than ever before in a single day in the desert. The enemy also massed a considerable force of bombers over the field of battle. 
From a record number of sorties, all Allied bombers came home despite fierce interference by the Luftwaffe. Six Zuckers and nine enemy fighters were knocked out of the sky. Eight of those fighters were Messerschmitt 109. The six Zuckers were bagged in a single encounter, and the South African pilot who led the show reported last night only one of our boys was missing, but he's just walked back here into the mess, cheerful as ever. Ten British planes went west yesterday, but five of the pilots are already known to be safe. For the record, RAF statisticians today figured out total air losses in the Middle East in the first three years of war. 2,582 Axis planes have been downed in combat as against 1,503 planes lost by the RAF. Since Italy entered the war, the Axis has lost a grand total of 4,717 craft to our fighters, our ACAC, and our raiders that have bombed and machine-gunned enemy airfields. Since November 18th last, 618 enemy planes have been destroyed in this sector, which is, which is just a little more than have been shot down in sweeps over the English Channel during the past year. And that was Winston Burdett in Cairo, and that's the story from Egypt. The Senate will receive an amendment to the Selective Service Act today, which calls for the drafting of 18 and 19-year-olds. The legislation is sponsored by Senator Gurney of South Dakota, who says that his amendment changes only the age clauses in the act and makes only one exception. The deferment of high school seniors will be permitted until they have finished their school year if they turn 18 in the second semester of the final year. The president, incidentally, will address the youth of the world today in a broadcast before the International Student Assembly, now gathered in Washington. White House Secretary Early says the talk will be a major pronouncement. CBS will broadcast the president's message at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Wartime. There's a lot of talk on Capitol Hill this morning about the oil situation, including demands for a single government wartime oil administrator. Sources who refuse to be named say that the oil industry's choice for the job is Harold Ickes, who bears the title of Federal Petroleum Coordinator. Ickes himself has joined with those insisting that all regulatory authority be placed in the hands of one official. Columbia's correspondents once again have reported the latest news direct by Transoceanic Shortwave Radio. This morning you heard from William J. Dunn in Australia, Larry Lesseur in Moscow, Charles Collingwood in London, and Winston Burdett in Cairo. This is George Bryan reporting for CBS World News. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.